0: The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all in one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G I S T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. The following
1: podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 2nd, 2014, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the producers of Jesus Christ Superstar, the Stadium Spectacular, didn't want to face the music. They were ducking when anyone inquired as to the health of their proposed tour of North American hockey arenas. Concerns were being raised, questions asked. What's the buzz tell me? What's, the buzz tell me? What's the happening? What's the buzz What's happening? All the producer could say was,
2: Why should would you want to know don't you mind about the future
1: the defensiveness was warranted jesus christ superstar arena spectacular tour canceled options clause entertainment llc announced today the cancellation of the jesus christ superstar arena spectacular tour the actors obviously disappointed took to twitter and displayed why they would have been the perfect embodiments of the son of god and all his harmonizing pals ben foster who is meant to play jesus said I'm so devastated. I'm sorry to everyone who got tickets and flights. Whoever fucked this up, I hate you. But I forgive you. I'm Jesus. Well was. And the cast in England tweeted a photo of themselves all raising their middle fingers. Seeing this, the American cast responded with a pic of all of them raising their middle fingers No, guys, it's turn the other cheek, not raise an identical finger. Anyway, we will never get to see Johnny Rotten playing King Herod. Here's hoping that one day Iggy Pop will don the rainbow wig in an amphitheater tour of Godspell. Today on the show, we'll talk about the return of U.S. Sergeant Bo Bergdahl. The plan originally was to have one guest talk about the politics and another about the history, but they both talked about both, and it wound up being a point-counterpoint. It wasn't meant to be, and it was great. I think it worked out better than some sort of phony debate segment, so you get both of those perspectives, and in the spiel, news about places that you didn't even know you cared about. All right, up first, the policy implications of making a deal to return an American soldier. After less than two months in Afghanistan, U.S. Army Private Bo Bergdahl was captured by the Taliban. Then a few days ago, the only American POW in the Afghan conflict was released, exchanged for five senior and deadly members of the Taliban who were being held in Gitmo. During his five years in captivity, Bergdahl was promoted in absentia, so now Sergeant Bergdahl will be united with his family. It is joyous for him and for his hometown in Idaho. In Washington, though, it's a source of contention. The price, some say, was too high. So joining me now is Jonah Blank, a senior political analyst at the Rand Corporation. For 10 years, he was on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Hello, Jonah Blank. Thank you for having me. As you've been hearing the details about Sergeant Bergdahl's ne- release and negotiation, what has surprised you?
2: Well, the recent uh, reports that uh, some of his uh, former comrades have put forward saying that he had gone AWOL or perhaps even deserted are a new twist on this. They've been rumored for quite a while, but now we're actually seeing a lot of this coming out In uh, more definitive form.
1: Yes. So for many years, the military refused to comment on the circumstances of his capture. There are probably a few motivations for that. One of them being you wouldn't want to give away a weakness if that were the case. But, for instance, David Martin of CBS flat-out reports that he was on walkabout, meaning he walked away from his platoon. Others have said maybe he lagged behind his platoon. His father said, you know, he wasn't captured in a latrine, which was a rumor. How important is that, any of that, if he was AWOL, for instance?
2: Well, it's important to the soldiers and uh, Marines, other service people, who were involved in the effort to find him. Because this was a massive effort, and uh, there were casualties that were taken. There were opportunities that were missed. So people who were involved in that are right to be be angered if the reports are true. But the bottom line is that if we had a standard that we're only going to go back for fallen comrades if they haven't been scared, if they haven't been confused, if they haven't done something stupid... Well, that's not really a commitment.
1: Well, what message does it send to members of the military that there is now all this political blowback about the decision?
2: The blowback towards the Obama administration saying we shouldn't be negotiating with the Taliban, we shouldn't be exchanging prisoners, that to me seems way off base. The U.S. has exchanged prisoners in every war we've ever
1: fought. How dangerous can these Taliban members be after years of captivity, given that we know that at least one of them um, was perhaps instrumental in bringing about thousands of deaths? So there's a reason they're in Guantanamo. Guantanamo is pretty much created as a prison for guys like this. So I'll give you that. But how dangerous can they be after being away from the battle for so long?
2: They can be dangerous. But let's remember here We have exchanged prisoners with Nazi Germany. We've exchanged prisoners with communist North Korea. We've exchanged prisoners every time we've fought a war, and we don't exchange just the good guys. We exchange whoever's there. As for, are these guys the worst of the worst? Well, there are a lot of pretty bad guys out there, and a lot of people just as bad as this are people we've done deals with. If you want to go down the list of Afghan warlords who have been uh, respected members of the U.S. team, you've got a lot of people who have a whole lot of blood on their hands, too.
1: We have heard among the criticisms that this will embolden the enemy to kidnap more Americans. Now, I hear that and I say, has there ever been an an opportunity for an enemy of the United States to kidnap an American soldier that they passed on? Wouldn't it seem apparent, given this, given Galad Shalit that a kidnapped American or enemy soldier has great value. But, you know, I don't want to put my thumb on the scale too much. What do you think of that? I think you're you're absolutely right.
2: Uh, Is there anyone out there who really thinks the Taliban has ever refrained from grabbing an American soldier, that they ever would refrain from grabbing an American soldier? Of course not.
1: You have a Ph.D. in anthropology. And it seems to me that uh, some of the questions about giving a message to terrorists or the kind of thinking that terrorists has, well, is there any anthropological angle to this, understanding our enemy, understanding if our enemy in this case would take messages a certain way or not?
2: I wrote an article about this reform policy specifically looking at understanding how negotiation goes on in a Pashtun culture, because as we know, the Taliban are almost uniformly Pashtun, and we really need to do a better job of understanding how deal-making gets done in Pashtun society. The most basic thing is that in Pashtun society, a deal grows out of a relationship. You don't really make a deal with a stranger. You make a deal with somebody you know. That doesn't necessarily mean your best friend. It could be a traditional rival, but it's someone you've got a relationship with. And part of the problem that we've had in doing any kind of negotiation with the Taliban is that we've got no relationship with them. That doesn't mean it's got to be a friendly relationship, but it does mean that we've got to sort of establish who we are, who they are, and a way of dealing with each other. But we've got to learn the rules, uh, or else we're just going to set ourselves up for having more people held for five years when they could have been out in one.
1: Are there any aspects of this that raise red flags with you or that you really do think we should question, may have been a misstep in terms of American policy and negotiating Bo Bergdahl's release?
2: I do think that the question of whether Bo Bergdahl was in any way uh, to blame for getting captured is one that legitimately can be asked, particularly by the service members who put their lives on the line to try to find him. But that's a very different question than the question of, should we have gone after him? Of course we should. Should we have tried to get him back? Of course we should. Did the administration go about this in the right way? As far as everything that is out there publicly indicates, I think the answer is, yeah, I think they went about
1: it right. Jonah Blank is senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Thank you so much, Jonah.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And this episode is brought to you by, and this means this is our inaugural sponsor. So let us thank and listen to what Squarespace has to say. They're an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Squarespace is excellent because it is simple and it is easy and you drag and drop things. And the whole point of it is you don't have to code. You just have to use a little bit of intuition and intellect. There's 24-7 support through live chat and email for a free trial and 10% off go to squarespace.com slash gist and enter offer code gist at checkout gist is spelled with a g you knew that you had to have known that if you're listening to us we thank squarespace for the support of the gist squarespace a better web starts with your website Senator Ted Cruz of Texas was on ABC's This Week. George Stephanopoulos had just interviewed United States National Security Advisor Susan Rice, and Senator Cruz characterized the interview this way.
2: You know, Ambassador
1: Rice basically said to you, yes, U.S. policy has changed. Now we make deals with with terrorists. Cruz went on to add, The reason why the U.S. has had the policy for decades of not negotiating with terrorists That assertion is simply ahistoric. The U.S. might not want to or they might not want to admit that they do negotiate with terrorists, but the U.S. does. And pretty much the U.S. always has. Mitchell Reese, who worked in the State Department under President George W. Bush and served as national security advisor to Mitt Romney when he was running for president, has written a book called Negotiating with Evil. He joins me now. Hello, Mitchell Reese. Hello there. So, did this negotiation and the decision making, from what you understand of the decision making, comport with maybe we should call it the best practices of negotiating with evil?
0: Uh, no, I don't think it really did. Um, the administration, I think, telegraphed early on that it was far more eager to uh, get our prisoner released than the Taliban were to, to get their five. In fact, the, the number, uh, the, the difference in numbers, I think, suggests that as well. So when you, when you suggest that you're more eager for a deal than your opponent, that, that kind of breaks the first rule of negotiating. Also, there were, uh, it takes place in a larger context of our drawing down uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, arguably, that also weakens some of our negotiating
1: leverage. The fascinating thing to me about your answer is that your criticism is not the with evil part, it's the negotiating part. You acknowledge, I mean, this is what your whole book is about, that negotiating with evil has had to go on. That doesn't mean that every negotiation with evil is a good negotiation.
0: That's right. Um, again, from the beginning of our country, our founding fathers negotiated with pirates uh, in North Africa. That's what led Thomas Jefferson to help found the Marines so we would no longer be paying tribute, uh, so that they would not attack our merchant vessels and imprison and enslave our uh, our citizens. So the question really is not, uh, do you do it? The question is, uh, do you do it well? Yeah. You know, there are some uh, very serious questions about this, not just on the front end, but also on the back end. What will happen to these five very hardened uh, Taliban operatives after they spend the year in Gutter? And uh, I think that's a question that many people would like to know.
1: Okay, let's talk about that for a second. Um, Do you think that they could still be extremely dangerous given that they've been away from battle for so many years? Oh, I
0: don't think that there's any doubt. Um, I don't think that your skills, at least the skills that they have, uh, erode. Um, We're not talking about young men going into battle. Uh, uh, We're talking about people who organize, people who motivate, people who recruit. Uh, And we do know that some of the people that have been released from Guantanamo in the past have returned to the battlefield and have uh, rejoined the fight. So that's a concern here as well.
1: Can you assess the landmines around the rhetoric and around this phrase, negotiating with terrorists? It was, this is the way a number of newscasts frame it. Did we negotiate with terrorists? Can you talk about the use of this phrase being so loaded and what that does for, say, American policy and thinking about the best ways to negotiate with evil?
0: Sure. The The title of the book, which you mentioned, uh, really comes from... A comment that uh, Vice President Cheney made in a speech in Philadelphia in 2002: "It was we don't negotiate with evil; we defeat it." And presidents from both parties uh, have, from time to time, cut deals that they didn't like. Uh, it's morally repugnant. There's something that's just viscerally um, difficult to, to sit down with men who have so much blood on their hands. And it's not just in the United States. Uh, Prime Minister Thatcher. Uh, had to make similar calculations when negotiating with the IRA. So this is part of the, the grave difficulty for uh, democratically elected leaders, having to uh, rightfully demonize these individuals that have done terrible things, but perhaps from time to time cutting deals with them uh, for a greater good. You know, it can be left to, uh, to people's subjective judgment whether uh, the deal is uh, serving a greater good or not. Uh, Obviously, President Obama thought that it was, or else he wouldn't have gone through with it.
1: You know, Ronald Reagan, I I know you know because it's quoted in your intro to your book, he referred to our enemies as, in this case, or in the case where he negotiated with them misfits, looney tunes, and squalid criminals, and yet then the Iran-Contra deal comes to light. So is there a better way to talk about one's enemies beforehand, given the realities of what you might have to do down the line?
0: Well, I think, again, you're, you're highlighting one of the difficulties because uh, the president was talking about that in a certain context. Uh, at the same time, there were individuals within the government that were were talking to these folks. And, frankly, uh, we have a lot of people in the U.S. government, um, and I'm very grateful that some of them are talking to some really terrible people out there. Sometimes you can cut deals uh whether you do or not you learn more about the individual about the organization sometimes you can turn them sometimes you can recruit them uh sometimes you can do a variety of things that you wouldn't be able to do unless you engage the difference really and the distinction is do you invite them to the oval office do you invite them to a rose garden ceremony Uh, But we've known for years that the United States wanted to get Beau Bergdahl back. We've known for years that we have been talking to the Taliban, both in Qatar, in Saudi Arabia, in other places around the world. Uh, And this goes back to the Clinton administration. So uh, when we were trying to negotiate uh, the return of Osama bin Laden, if they would hand him over to us.
1: You were once such a person. You were at those uh, or maybe a few times such a person, right? You negotiated with members of the IRA in Northern Ireland. Am I getting that right?
0: Yes, that's right.
1: So at that time, did you ever feel hamstrung or even in any way affected by the rhetoric of vocal American political leaders beforehand or hamstrung by the what we've established as a historic notion that we don't do this, we don't negotiate with terrorists?
0: I was certainly very sensitive to it, and um, I made sure that I uh, kept Secretary Powell and then Secretary Rice uh, informed uh, all the time as to what I was doing and what I was was hoping to do. But sure, there were people um, on all sides, not just here but also in the U.K., who were uh, upset at some of the things that uh, I said and did. One of the risks that you take as a negotiator is that there's no guarantee you're actually going to get to the promised land. In Northern Ireland, fortunately, we did, and uh, so far the peace has
1: held. State Department veteran Mitchell Reese is the author of Negotiating with the Evil. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Now it's the spiel, and time for News from Places You Might Not Have Known Existed. Andrea, do we have the jingle for News from Places You Might Not Have Known Existed?
2: Still no jingle budget, Mike.
1: Ah, yeah. Can we uh, sort of do it ad hoc?
2: Today on the show, a look at some places, places you didn't know exist.
1: Ooh, that's good. So let's go to Abkhazia, the breakaway Georgian Republic of Abkhazia. Not even the money breakaway republic, that is South Ossetia. Abkhazia's war with Georgia took place in 1993, and 3,000 people died. So it could be, well, not exactly free, but sort of ignored by every country except Russia, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Nauru. Those are the four real countries that recognize Abkhazia. Nauru. I know. And everyone from Nauru is saying, what are we, chop liver? Or they would be saying, what are we, chop liver, if Nauru's 9,378 residents were familiar with chop liver. But that's not the place you didn't know existed. It's Abkhazia. And the president of Abkhazia is done. He's gone. He stepped down yesterday. The Abkhazians were not happy with the slow pace of change. So here's what this means for us in the West. Vladimir Putin is sometimes portrayed as this wily world leader, and he's running circles around the callow President Obama. But the reality is a lot more complex. Putin has all these foster children republics that are not in good shape and the ouster slash resignation in Abkhazia and their president Alexander Z. Ankhvab is such a sign. At first I was fascinated with the name Alexander Z. Ankhvab. I noted that if you take the Z. Ankhvab and change the N and the V to an I and a Z, his last name would actually be an anagram of Abkhazia. Let me relate it to an analogy that you can understand. It's as if the United States of America elected a president named Willard W. Nupid Status Forakome. How crazy would that be, the Nupid Status Forakome administration? Anyway, I spend a lot of time thinking about Alexander Z. Ankvab, researching Alexander Z. Ankvab, finding out what the Z stands for. It's Zolotinskovich. I know you had Zolotinskiewicz in the pool. And then I realized the era of Alexander Zolotinskiewicz-Akhvab is over. We're in a post Akvob abkhazia and it's time to move on. Time to move on to Nemi Finland. Let me read the second graph of today's New York Times front-page story on soccer match fixing. Dateline, Nemi Finland. The city on the Arctic Circle is known as the hometown of Santa Claus. It boasts a theme park with reindeer elves and jolly St. Nick's. It's also a popular destination for Asian couples looking to make love under the northern lights. Okay, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's just take out that second sentence with the elves. You have a near total juxtaposition of hometown of Santa Claus with Asian couples making love outside. This is not right. What do you mean you're the hometown of Santa Claus? I looked this up right there on the Ravi Nemi website, quote, The official hometown of Santa Claus and the little registered trademark symbol. I guess you're allowed to do that. They claim it's where Santa Claus lives. There were no claims about Asian couples making love. Ravi Nemi. Finally, the news from places you might not have known existed. Uruguay and Syria. You knew both of them existed, but you didn't know the connection. Turns out the president of Uruguay, President Jose Mujica, has offered to take in all the Syrians in Guantanamo Bay. Obama seemed pretty impressed by the generosity of the offer last month, but he didn't officially comment. Mujica has a thing for taking in Syrians. He has, he's a very generous man. He was so touched by the plight of the Syrian war orphans, he offered to take a hundred Syrian war orphans and have them live on the grounds of the Uruguay president's summer home. No international standards, say children have to travel with a caregiver, but apparently Mujica is serious. Mujica is known as the poorest president in the world, he donates most of his $12,000 a month salary to charity. He uh, pretty much only owns a Volkswagen. He rents. Uh, He's 78. He's going to retire next year. And he and his wife plan to adopt 30 to 40 children after his term expires and teach them to farm the land. But is he the poorest president in the world? Washington Post looked into it. Turns out that Nepali Prime Minister Sushil Kerala has three declared possessions in the world. Two of them are cell phones, and one of them doesn't work. How does this compare to the net worth of Alexander Z. Ankvab? It doesn't matter. Alexander Z. Ankvab is no longer president. Weren't you listening to item number one in news from places you might not have known existed? Andrea.
2: That was news about places. Places you didn't know about till now.
1: Andrea Salenzi produces. Andrea Salenzi, who knows that a black kazoo involves zinth. Actually, a black kazoo involves zinth. is an anagram of Alex Zolotinskovich, ankh Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Funny Andy Bowers story. Bowers goes to a tattoo parlor and is like, I want a tattoo of an albino clown and his prize cattle. And the tattoo guy wouldn't do it. And finally, Andy Bowers is all just like, Kvetch! Ink a vanilla bozos ox. Yeah, that's also an anagram of Alex Zoltanitskovich Ankvab. You can subscribe in iTunes and give us a review. And the reviews are great. We really do read them. Reviews help us with our rankings. And I know we're part of the daily feed, but if you go to iTunes and subscribe to the Gist directly, that helps us a lot. And please tell someone about the Gist. Subscribe for them in iTunes. We have our own email. You could get that at slate.com slash gist email. And thank you for listening for this long, so I want to give you a bonus treat, suggestion slash question that I put to former senior diplomat in the Bush administration, Mitchell Reese, about the five Taliban released for Bo Bergdahl. Can the U.S. put a chip in them or track them in some way?
0: Uh, good question. Uh, <laughs> uh, haven't heard that suggested. I think that's a little fanciful right now, probably in the realm of Hollywood than reality.
1: Ah. Or though, maybe if you know the answer, that's what you'd say. Think about it. And thanks for listening.